0: time. I was just about to get us started. So let's let's do that, and then we'll get right into it. Try to pick up right where we left off last week. I'll summarize a little bit, and then, yeah, we'll talk about what we're going to try to do today. Shall shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for another day that you've given us, um, and the day to think about you, reflect on you, ask you to move among us as we sit and talk this morning about revelation and all other sorts of related things to that and we pray for our service this morning as we gather together as your people may may we be drawn by your spirit to um, let go for a little while of our worries and concerns of the things of this world and to be reminded of uh, what you've done for us and the promises you've laid out for us and our future our hope so we, we pray for our service, as well of our times here this morning, we ask these things according to your will. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, so we are still talking about Revelation, and uh, last week we didn't even really get to the book. So for you, those of you who weren't here with us last week, we didn't, we didn't technically open the book and start reading from it and walking through it. We're going to get there eventually. It uh, just feels like there's a couple of things that are good to talk about and reflect on before we get there. So one little uh, statement or something that I was trying to get across last week was that there's a lot of things that we need to, I should say, iron out before we get to the book because we all we come with assumptions about what the book is about and what it's going to tell us, what it's not going to tell us. And so it's good that we are even aware of our own assumptions. We all have different assumptions about the book. But that doesn't matter what perspective you have on the book or what anybody takes or believes. We all assume things before we even start reading the book. That greatly affects what we think is in the book and what it, how it speaks to us. So what I propose for us to contemplate... Is, uh, is kind of this idea. I put up a timeline, and this is not going to be in any way uh, scaled to anything. But I, just, I put us here in the middle. And um, my point when we look at Revelation is that oftentimes, we know it's about things in the future, for sure. There's got some things in there. But what we understand to have happened at this moment in time, 2,000 years ago with Jesus, what He accomplished, and... What he finished, what he started, et cetera, largely determines how we read Revelation, what we think is in the book of Revelation. And so I kind of started with a couple of questions, and one was, you know, what are some things that we think, um, what is the next event that we feel the Bible talks about that is going to happen? And so we talked a little bit about that, right? I mean, Claude, you mentioned uh, a phrase, a twinkling of an eye, think, a thing, or transformation of our bodies. Paul was here and he talked about uh, wars, rumors of wars. So what I'd like to do is, we, I started a timeline last week about one particular perspective that we probably are very familiar with on what happens next, and then try to fill that out so that you understand what, what, it, what it is, where it comes from, what are the ideas, and then kind of put out there a second one, an alternative that uh, is probably more has been more historical uh maybe i can say that more common in time and that the one that's very popular today is a very recent arrival on the scene of uh, thinking of how the church views things so I'd, i'd like to just clarify as much as possible before we even get to the book because we hold so many like i said assumptions in our mind about different things on the end times what does the bible say about it what does it not say that i think there's lots of confusion, and it's really helpful to clarify that in our mind. So, for example, starting off with something that you said, Claude, the the phrase, twinkling of an eye. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15. If you guys would like to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And it's towards the end of the... Not the end, but the second half at end of the chapter first Corinthians 15 verse 50 So I will I'll get us started at 50 I tell you this brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable but behold I tell you a grand mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And he's not talking about sleep, he's talking about dying. And He's saying that there are some believers who will not end up dying before this day comes. In a moment, and in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and then we shall all be changed. And so there's a... There's interesting information, but it's also kind of fuzzy as to when exactly this is supposed to take place. But it is describing the speed at which we will be transformed when Jesus returns. At the last trumpet, it says. It's not going to be a slow evolution of our bodies, where we will slowly become like him. Paul says it's going to be super fast, like a twinkling of an eye. He doesn't talk about whether that's coming next, whether when that might happen, but he does say... Um, not everyone's going to experience physical death at some point when Jesus comes there will be Christians alive on the earth So that when he does come, they will be transformed and they won't go first right? There's another passage in the Bible that says the people who have died physically They will actually rise before us and then we'll, we'll kind of all meet him together So maybe let's go look at that one too. So you have these these pieces of information in, in your hand. So this one by itself the only indication that we have as to timing is it says the last trumpet. Right? We read that. At the last trumpet, this is going to occur. So that's just something maybe to hold in the back of your mind as we keep talking about this. But the other passage that references the dead going first is 1 Thessalonians. Just further to the right in your Bible. This is what sometimes there, because there is a small. I feel like they're easy to just, like, flip over. That's alone. So if you're near, like, the books of Timothy, you've gone a little too far. And then if you're still in Colossians, Philippians, those smaller ones, you just got to keep going a little bit further. It's right after Colossians. So Colossians, and it's chapter 4. Or I'm sorry, First Thessalonians. Okay. <laughs> Someone's late. First Thessalonians four. Is there even a chapter four in Colossians, or is it just three? No, that's true. Another is four. Four is the last one. So in First Thessalonians four, verse thirteen, well, it says, "We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died." that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Because we believe that Jesus died, rose again, and even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Right? And it says here, he also mentions the trumpet here. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up with them. So at least we have somewhat of a sequence here, right? That at some point, when Jesus comes, there will be a trumpet, the last trumpet, apparently, and it will be this grand moment, and those who have died, who are our believers, will be caught up, and so they won't be, like, behind. We'll, we'll all be together with, with Jesus. So far, so good. Right? So, Claude, your observation last week, that is a, the speed at which that happens. It's like, it's like you blink your eye, and it's happening. So it's, it's more reference to how fast our transformation happens than it is as to when it's going to happen on a, on a timeline. I have a question, but I don't have an answer. Perfect. Are we going to leave our so bodies here. here or are we is that just the spirit that's going I have I, I can I don't have an answer for that it looks like in chapter 15 of Corinthians that whatever our part of our our soul our spirit our essence of which our body this physical body covers it has to pass away and so this perishable body we we leave behind apparently and we take on the incorruptible that's what I was thinking that seems to be the moment that transformation happens. And it'll be, it won't be like our physical birth here. We took nine months in the womb, and then bleh, we come out, and then we start growing. The physical, the spiritual one will be a real fast one. I think that's the contrast intended. And so, what we know is that that happens at Christ's coming, right? So we know that that's, we know that Jesus' return is is happening. I'll put coming up here. We know that's happening at some point. And uh, then the question is, between now and then, is are, are, are there indications in the Bible of things that need to happen, or that will happen before that day comes? This is where there, are, there is quite a bit of... There's just lots of stuff out there. So today, we have uh, a viewpoint on this that's probably most common, like I was saying you're gonna be most familiar with here it because it, was, it took root in this part of the world and at this time. You mentioned a little bit something, Stephanie, last week about a group that sometimes wakes up in the middle of the night, yeah. not wanting to miss out on that day. And we talked a little bit about the history of that. That's one of the things that's happened in, it was briefly in Europe in the 17 and 1800s and it really took root here, this notion of, oh, we have a date and we know and it's gonna be really soon. And then it just didn't happen many times and that developed into a larger framework of splitting up the return of Jesus into various various moments so I want to get into that a little bit because that affects what is revelation talking about what date what what return and and timing so that affects things a little bit so this top timeline I want to create um, for us to understand that viewpoint and so what's very common in that viewpoint that perspective is this idea of Jesus can come back this afternoon. Any moment. There's um, we We're in, we we're in Thessalonians, correct? So, go to the 2nd Thessalonians. And so if you don't have to move a whole lot. And in chapter 2, this is one of the dilemmas that, that we face. 2nd Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse numero uno, says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, and our being gathered together with him. That seems fairly clear what he's referring to, right? Given what we just read, the coming of Jesus, the time where we get gathered to him and our transformation, that that moment. That seems to be pretty clear what this is referring to. Uh, Verse 2, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter maybe that seems to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come and don't let anybody deceive you for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first and then the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember when I was with you that I told you these things? Uh, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may, re- may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so <coughs> until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his Coming. I wanted to read all the way till then because it's very clear that Jesus coming is tied to him dealing with this figure. Whoever this guy is, the, the son of lawlessness. This is where things begin to get a little icky and sticky. Correct? Because we read this paragraph, you notice that the coming of Jesus and our being gathered to him, this moment, his coming, seems to be tied to the time when Jesus also comes and deals with this this figure. And Paul names two things that have to happen before Jesus coming and are being gathered to him. Are we all together on that so far? So he names these two things. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed, made public, made known, and a great apostasy of God's people. That's not of the world. of God's people will fall away in large numbers. And so those are two things. This is the only place in the Bible where something like this is this clear about the return. Is that these things must precede. So, what do we deal with? A very common idea. Have, have you heard of this idea that Jesus can come back at any moment? Maybe before you take your next breath. Maybe before you take a nap today. Or don't take a nap. Or go to bed. Or maybe while you're asleep, he might return, as, we, as you talked about. How does that fit into a passage like this? How, how, do, how does that get reconciled? And does that make sense then? You felt like you were going to say something, Claudio. Look like it's something on your lips. Not really. Just... Okay, but do you understand the, the, the tension then that we have with that idea? Are you familiar with that idea that Jesus could come back at any moment? Mm-hmm. We are all familiar with that. So mm-hmm. this passage seems, on the surface anyway, to indicate contrary, right? That there are things that must happen first before that day comes. So the reason this is confusing, so let me, let me this is why I wanted to do this timeline up here for us. It is because there is a viewpoint, very common today, that has separated Jesus' coming almost into three different moments to to kind of accommodate these different passages that we read about when his return is. And some of that is tied to what he did and didn't do 2,000 years ago. We ended with that last week. So let's develop that a little bit and talk about it as we go, if I can find the eraser. That was good. <laughs> it was when you're not thinking that you do some of those things. Yeah. So, um, back here at, at the cross, and um, the gospel is preached by John the Baptist and Jesus, and they talk a lot about the kingdom of God. Right? Repent because the kingdom of God is near. It's near. Get ready. It's almost here. And then Jesus says, John the Baptist preaches it's near. Then Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. This is it. Get ready. God is about to do what he promised. So there is a perspective, like I said, that has become much more popular nowadays. And it really began in the 1700s and 1800s that understands that when Jesus came and preached the gospel, when John the Baptist was preaching, when the disciples were preaching, even after Jesus died, the kingdom of God was being offered to the nation of Israel. And they obviously rejected him, and they rejected the gospel. And so there was this long plan for Israel that started with the promises to Abraham. And then because of the rejection, there is this pause that happens for the plan with Israel. And if I get too confusing or ahead of myself, just throw something at me, or just say, hey, let me ask a question real quick. Interrupt me. Uh, so God has this plan, and then they reject Jesus. Because of that, so goes the view, this whole, this whole project is on pause, and then will commence way later down the line. And then what Jesus does is he begins, not plan almost like plan B, and he does... He begins something called the church. The church. And he has this people who he calls to himself, who follow him, and they're the church. And then when he is done doing whatever it is he's going to do, right, some people think that is telling the world about Jesus. When that finishes, when there's no more people to accept, I think you mentioned that, Pam. When there's no more people to accept the gospel, then... Well, not no more people, but when I guess when their, goal, when their mission is over, however we want to define that, then God returns to deal with Israel. That's kind of the idea, with this viewpoint. So, what, what, is, what exactly do, then does that mean? Um, there is this, uh, do we want to go there right, right now? No, let's go, let's go over here and see what this sparks. So that means that um, we get caught up in what's called the rapture. Have we heard of this term before? Right? And the idea here is that Jesus only comes down halfway. And he doesn't do it publicly. Jesus comes only to the clouds and says, let's go. And then we all we all get caught up. Nobody else sees him. And we go up with him. That's called the rapture. And they say, this could happen at any moment. We don't know when it's going to happen. And... Uh, when that happens, then, then everything will shift back to God dealing with Israel again. And then what will happen is there will be a period of about seven years called the Great Tribulation. Okay, it's usually, it's not usually, it is supposed to be seven years because with Israel, God had started this plan and it was supposed to take ni- 490 years. And because they rejected him, it stopped at 482, 83. Right? Yeah. And so there's seven years left over. And so there's the seven-year time frame for God to work with Israel. And so that's why it still has to happen. And God's not done judging them. That's, it's 490 years of judgment on them. And God was going to begin the process of the seven years of freedom for them. But because they said no, God said, I'm going to have to wait now. And so I'm going to do this. And then when I'm done, this is called Jesus' return for one of his comings. Because we read that it's at his return that we get caught up in the clouds. So that's one part of it. And then you have seven years. And then at the end of seven years, then Jesus comes down on a white horse. And he really deals with a lot of people. So this is another one of his returns. This is like return number one. Return number two. This is according to this perspective. Okay, that's how how this works. So that then, it's easier to say, well, this, this one can happen at any moment. And then this is the one that we read about in 2 Thessalonians 2, where... There's a grand apostasy. All kinds of crazy stuff are happening. And there's a man of lawlessness. Some people think that's the Antichrist. And Jesus deals with him face to face when he returns that day. Uh, So that's how they divide that. And then, after he comes back down, there's another time frame here of a thousand years. One with three zeros. And then it's at the end of this one. But there's another battle, and then it's almost like his third coming, when he fully defeats evil. And we'll do return number three. Even though he's already on the earth, technically, but he doesn't finish the job in the first one. He doesn't finish the job in the second one. But this is when he finally completes. But why is this all necessary? It's because all of this is finishing up what was not finished here. And this is what I meant by saying when, when what Jesus did is understood as making an offer to Israel that they reject, and God says, fine, I will do it later, then that leaves all of this for the future. And so usually this perspective reads the book of Revelation as largely dealing with this, this, this whole scheme of things. And this, this might be, I think, what you're most familiar with. Right? This is what the movies are made out of. So the Left Behind series, are we familiar with those? The books and the movies are made about this day happening, and then what happens right after that happens. That's why it's called Left Behind, everyone who's left behind. And the idea is that Christians are cut up in the rapture, and the only people that are left are unbelievers at the beginning. And then we get a mixed crowd. Because there has to be a mixed crowd, because Paul did say in Second Thessalonians that when he comes... Uh, there will be some being gathered to him as well, so that 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 's how this works there's seven like that there 's seven years, and then there 's the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. This is a lot of information, but I would like you to just take a minute to to either let that sink in for a second or ask a question about that and so, like i said in in this viewpoint what Jesus and the disciples did 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God, it kind of like not really arrived. When they were saying, it's here, it's here, get ready, Israel, get ready. When they reject him, God has to say, well, it will come, It will push it back to a later date. Because that's what this 1,000 year period is for. It's for God's kingdom to be established on the earth. To finally be fulfilled his promises. And he doesn't really do that here. That's how, that's how this is all this is really the crux that we have to think about. What, what does the cross mean? And does it mean that uh, there were plans that were pushed back, that weren't fulfilled, that, that now are awaiting God to, to do that at a later date? And so this idea that Jews would come in different phases, this is a very new idea in the history of the church. So for the first 18, even 1900 years, this, first off, the idea didn't exist until the 1700s. That there will be multiple phases of Jesus' return. And so, yeah, Joe. So in the seven-year tribulation, I've heard the term, the time of Jacob's trouble. Yeah. Is that from the Bible, or is that just part of the theory? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I, um, I believe I believe it's uh, Jeremiah, there is the phrase, Jacob referring to Israel, in a time of great distress for them in the future, before... He blesses them in the kingdom of God. and So the idea is that this period, it's it's directed at them. This is all about them. Them having to endure. It's like a birth pain. It's a necessary pain before the blessing of God arrives in the kingdom. If you you want to think of it that way. So yeah, this is also called Jacob's distress because of that. But I do believe it is a a phrase from the, the prophet Jeremiah. It is, Paul? 37. Yeah. So that, that's where that, that comes from. And so this gets very confusing because when we read certain passages, it seems to uh, indicate that Jesus is simply coming and we're going to be gathered to him. Um, so any questions about that before we look into the this? The church will be gathered. Yes. The church is gone. The rest of it comes in sequences. I guess that's the right word. Yeah, so let, let's think about that, that concept. Can I say, I just I want to go with the theory that means we don't have to go through any of the hard stuff. It does mean we wouldn't be here <laughs> for this. Yeah. <coughs> uh, that, that's usually I mean, the whole conversation. I mean, usually the conversation just is just about skip ahead. What, yeah. who, who stays here for this. All right, there are some people today who feel like this happens simultaneously with this one. <coughs> And it kind of brings together two, two ideas. Um, but but there still is. But that's all under this framework, under this, under this viewpoint, that there is such a thing as that. So um, Paul mentioned, you mentioned last week, what are the things that we're looking for? I'm sorry, but this is why whenever something happens in the Middle East with Israel, this viewpoint usually gets right up and starts shouting, we must be really close to this because it looks like trouble for Israel. That's usually what happens. And so whenever there are signs of trouble brewing in the Middle East, this group gets very vocal. So that's why in the country we live in for the last 70 years, at the very least since they were formed in 1948, and even before that, as things began to shift in that part of the world, a large group of people really began to get loud about this. And that's where the books come from. That's where the movies come from. And ever since the 80s, This has become a a very prominent idea in most Christian circles. Okay, so that's why you're most familiar with it, and that's why if you've lived in particularly America, because we've been very closely tied to Israel, that's been the story that you're going to hear, although that's not necessarily the most common view across the world for Christians across the world. This is the story being told here. Any questions about that? Because I'd I'd like to look at one thing, and then we're going to look at an alternative timeline understanding this moment differently and how that greatly impacts this whole scheme. I'll try to leave this mostly up here and we'll do one right underneath of it. Any question, any uh, how does this fit into that type of a thing? Paul mentioned um, back there, he said, Well, what about you know when Jesus tells his disciples you're gonna hear of rumors Wars and nation against nation, and all this crazy stuff happening, and then the end is going to come. So again, let me erase this, and that's another. This is a, if you want to go to Matthew twenty-four. This is a this is a key phrase we looked at when we studied Matthew. We just didn't have time to really dive into it, and we're going to do that here because here we have like infinite time to do whatever we want. Time doesn't really happen here. We're just here. It's Monday morning already. Did you guys realize that? I'm just kidding. So in Matthew 24, a passage under this perspective, right, people who have a viewpoint of this, they usually read Matthew 24 as talking about things that happen here and onward. Uh, what I would like to propose, and I think Matthew 24 has much more to do with this moment in time than it does about our future time. But this is what you're going to be very familiar with. Matthew 24. Did I get stuff on my notes? Hopefully not. Come on, come on. All right. Uh, Verse 3. We'll just start there for just a couple of verses. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And they were saying, Hey, when will these things be? What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because Jesus had just said, "See that temple over there? It's going to get annihilated." And so Jesus, so they were like, uh, "When is all of this going to happen?" And Jesus goes through the whole chapter, to talk about some crazy things that are going to happen. So before we even get to that, if if we're if uh, under this perspective, just about everything that Jesus is going to say here refers to this. Over here, in particular, this seven years of tribulation. That is why, if Jesus is saying the temple is going to be destroyed here in the future, that is why when people talk about the Jews wanting to rebuild their temple today, they start thinking, oh, that's going to fulfill. It needs to be rebuilt because it has to be destroyed again. Yes, Paul. So people think it's not talking about the temple that was destroyed 40 years after. They think that that's just a foreshadowing, because when that gets destroyed, it's destroyed by the abomination of desolation, or the Antichrist, or whoever. And in in chapter 24, Jesus comes back to end that whole thing. And so they say it couldn't have been fulfilled here. It's going to be fully fulfilled, even though part of it was. That's the confusing part. But the idea is that this is all happening in the future. And so there are phrases here that we are going to be very familiar with, like Paul, you, like for example, what you had mentioned. right? So verse 4, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. For many are going to come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah. And they will lead many astray. And then you will, heal, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, and don't be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, various places, all these things are about the beginning of birth pains. Again, when, when this, ver- this chapter is used, it's usually to refer to these birth pains, these awful things that are going to happen before the grand day when He comes to bring His kingdom. Um, yeah, we'll keep reading. Verse 9. They will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. Many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another, and many false prophets will rise and leave many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It certainly sounds like we're talking about the end of time, right? At the very least, it sounds like he's saying, yeah, then the end, right, because the end is the end, and the end will come so that's part of the confusing nature of this chapter i'm not saying that i have it all figured out but there is an alternative way for us to read this chapter and i i hinted at it when we went through the book together whatever all of this is towards the end of the chapter this is what jesus says so if you want to um to get this in its full way jump to verse 29 Right, so i He's going to go through a description of the signs and wonders and the abomination of desolation and all this chaos unfolding on the earth. But look at what he says starting at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon is not even going to give its light, and stars will fall from heaven, and the powers up above will be shaken And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from the four winds, whatever that is, and from one end of heaven to the other. Not that heaven has an end. And then listen, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves... You know summer is coming. So, when you see all of this stuff happening all around you, know that he is near at the very gates. And I say to you, and here is, here is the kicker. Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all of these things, all of these things take place. And what I was proposing to you is that I think Jesus limits whatever this chapter is talking about. He's telling them this generation, you guys, right now, you're going to see the unfolding of these events. This generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. And that is the challenge, I think, of reading this chapter. I just picked that up and put it back for, for no reason. That is the challenge of, uh, of what, what do we do with this. So in this pres- from this timeline perspective, Matthew 24 is talking about a variety of things. It's talking maybe about an impending doom. At the same time, it's it's talking about this day that's going to come. Because so if you read further on, it seems like some people are going to cu- cut up, and it's going to come like a thief in the night, and we don't know what's happening. So it seems like it's talking about this moment. And then at other times, it's talking about this moment. And then the end, end is only all the way over here. And it seems like it's talking about that moment. That's what gets so confusing about Matthew 24, especially under this perspective. Because you have to divide the chapter up into... Maybe Jesus answering three different questions. That's very commonly how that's done. But the alternative here is to understand Jesus talking about something that they experienced in the first century. As crazy as that sounds. Something that they were going to see. Because he says over and over in the book, actually, that the Son of Man is coming. And it's coming. You're not going to die. And you're going to see him coming. He even tells the disciples, just jump back to chapter 10 of Matthew. He says this twice, actually, in the book of Matthew. When he's telling them to go to town to town throughout Israel, he tells them something fascinating in chapter 10. First, let me just, we'll just read one verse here to get the make sure we got the context right. Verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. Verse 6, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, he goes, he tells them you can heal people, you can raise the dead, tell them the kingdom is here, and they go. And they get get pretty um, excited about it. And then he begins to describe what's going to happen also while they're doing all of this. Um, Verse 16, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Okay, we kind of get that. Jump down to verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Before the coming of the Son of Man. And that's kind of make you go, huh? So, this phrase, there's another instance. Uh, later on at the transfiguration that Jesus talks about. Some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Where there seems to be an immediacy to whatever is about to happen. And I think that's the easiest and best way to to understand what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. Something that would occur in their lifetime. And he's using all kinds of language to describe something amazing. And what would that have been? Well, About 40 years after Jesus dies... Jerusalem does get destroyed by the Romans. The temple gets annihilated. Almost every stone removed from its location. Things burned, and the Jews scattered throughout the world. It was an awful, horrific moment in their history. To this day, they recount 70 AD, the invasion of Titus Vespasian, Roman uh, general, and then later in 130, 140, 120, it was kind of like the last... Hurrah, they were totally stomped out. But that happened back then, in that first generation. And many would have lived to see that day come that they thought would never come. The temple actually being annihilated. and never thought that day was possible. So the shocking thing of Matthew is that he's saying, this day, this is the confusing part, okay? He, He describes it as the coming of the Son of Man. And if you're thinking, when are we going to get to Revelation? We will, but this is going to be so much help, so helpful when you get to the book. Okay, just trust me on that one. Oh boy, we are almost out of our time. So the, the issue comes with this phrase, the coming or the arrival of the Son of Man. We will probably have to uh, take more time to do this, but this is a description of a vision that Daniel had in chapter 7 of his book. And he has this, I'm going to summarize it for you, and we'll probably have to look at it together uh, maybe more next week. But in the vision, this is what Daniel says, I see a vision, I see four nasty animals come out of an ocean. And it's one kingdom after another. And it's kind of like they're living in exile at the time of the first beast. And he goes, there's going to be a couple more animals come up, and they represent earthly kings and their kingdom. One after the other. The day of the last one, he says, I looked up. and, And then at the days of this last one, God said, enough. I'm going to establish my kingdom. So then what happened in the day of the last beast? The vision is, he says, I see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, but not coming down to earth. He's arriving in the throne room. Because Daniel is sitting next to the Ancient of Days, watching all of this. And so the coming of the Son of Man is actually an upward movement. If you read Daniel chapter 7, it's not his arrival on earth, it's his arrival before the ancient of days to receive all authority and power and to exercise rule and to annihilate the beast. That's the vision of Daniel 7. We're probably, we should explore that together next week because that will be more interesting to do together. Um, so we're, we're getting very close to finishing painting the picture before we can look at what happens because, because... When we understand, or when we view this moment as the arrival of the Son of Man, this, in, this title in particular, it's distinct from Jesus' arrival on earth. So in the Gospels, Jesus never says, my coming, like me person. He always uses this phrase, the arrival of the Son of Man, on the clouds of heaven. It's, when we read Daniel 7, I encourage you to read it during the week, you're going to go, oh, well that's interesting. Because it's not the arrival on earth, it's his arrival on earth before God. It's the timing when God says, I'm going to give you now all the authority to rule over the world, the human world. Finally, there's going to be a human. That's what the uh, phrase son of man means, a human being. It had been relinquished by Adam, and it's been chaos, and now finally there's going to be a ruler, a human ruler, to bring order to the world. And so that's what the vision of Daniel 7 is saying, and that's what Jesus is saying is going to happen. When he's before... Are you still at Matthew? Let's cap this off with this. Um, when Jesus is before the leaders, and there's this moment where they go ballistic over something that Jesus says, and it has to do with Jesus telling them that basically he is the Son of Man who's going to climb in the clouds. And they said, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. So it's in, it's in chapter 26. He is before the council... Let me just see if I can find it. See the twenty-six or twenty-seven? It's it's somewhere here. <coughs> Why should not be in any one of these places? No, it's it's definitely here. Um, okay, so he is before the council, and let's look at. Um, Mm, verse 62, we, we can do that there. All these false witnesses are coming, and Jesus is just quiet, and they're like, are you going to say anything? And in verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer Jesus to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said, I beg you by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah. The Son of God. And here is Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, "Indeed, you have said so. I tell you, from now on, from now, now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven." He uses the same phrase from Daniel 7: "The Son of Man coming on the clouds. <laughs> you are going to see it." In other words, what's his answer to them? Who are you? Jesus is basically saying, "I'm the guy who's going to come on the clouds, and you are going to see it. And that means that you as a leader, you are one of the enemies. Like if, if I'm the righteous man, if I am the king, and you're against me, when I arrive, I trample my enemies. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to take you down. And that's when they're like, wha! <laughs> you know, like, then the high priest, I wasn't exaggerating, tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy! Utter blasphemy! And so now you get you get you get the how this moment is. So this phrase is used quite a bit in Matthew, not to refer to the future end of the world, but to the arrival of the righteous King before God. We will end with that uh, this morning, and we'll try to pick up right there. So if next week you want to come ready with Daniel seven in your brain, <coughs> read it. The vision is weird, but just remember these are it's a vision of animals and beasts, and uh, then take note when Daniel says, and then I saw, behold. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. That's verse 13. Just be ready for that. And ask yourself, is this person coming to the earth? Is he arriving in it? Well, what's going on? And what does he do right after he comes on the clouds? So read that. um, And then we're going to try to paint the picture of, what if we put then all of that here? How does that affect how we, we view this moment in time? And then once we have enough footing, we will start looking at Revelation. Because then Revelation opens up to us a very different... A very different way for us to think about it. <sighs> All right, folks. We have done more than enough. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you. We will we will get this we will get this thing going into Revelation soon enough. It's just these things, if you carry with them in the back of your mind and you're waiting to see if how does revelation play into this or so that that's why it gets so confusing. So we we laid out clearly. And like what I said. I won't talk a whole lot about this perspective of Revelation while we're in it. We're going to think of it more in terms of this bottom way that I'm going to put out here later, a different timeline. And we can, we can ask questions and we can talk about how, how would this perspective read Revelation. But the goal is not to think of all the different ways we can understand Revelation, but to learn the content really well once and learn one way of reading it, and then you, we can reflect on various perspectives. Sounds you good? Didn't, you didn't wait for us? No. We actually have just finished.